Amen. Please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn together uh, once again to Isaiah chapter 9, page 573 in the Blue Bible, I believe. Isaiah 9. We'll read verses 2 through 7. This is God's word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, we're here in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, again, picking up where we left off last Sunday, uh, looking at these throne names of the Messiah, as they've been called. Throne names of the Messiah. The Messiah is who Isaiah is speaking of here by the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of the Savior who would come and release his people from oppression and bring them light and joy and peace. We see those promises here. We're led to expect a very great figure, uh, some kind of great heroic warrior uh, in the way he's described here. Uh, those are the kinds of things, the kinds of feats that this person will accomplish. But then Isaiah says something very shocking. He says that the people of Israel and Judah says something that they never expected to hear. They, they didn't have this kind of idea of what the Messiah would be. He tells them that their deliverer would be a child. To us, a child is born. 
But then he turns right around and he surprises us again with these, these descriptions of this child in verse 6. They don't sound like descriptions of any child that uh, we've ever heard of or encountered. Let's review what we learned last week. First, Isaiah says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's talking about the king of God's kingdom. The rule and reign of God's kingdom will be in the hands of this child, this child king. And of course, this king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he came in fulfillment of God's promises, uh, not only his promises of the Redeemer uh, that he made throughout the Old Testament, but his promises to David in particular. We read them a moment ago here in chapter 9 at the end of the chapter. God had promised to David a son who would... Uh, have a reign over his kingdom that would never end. He would be everything that Israel ever wanted in a king, everything that they needed in a king, everything that all their other kings failed to be. He is really what the whole world longs for in a king, in a leader, in a ruler. He is the one who is truly good and just and upright, and the one who can give us true peace. No human ruler has ever done that. None has ever been able to provide that. But Jesus does. And he rules his people, even now, by his grace, in a kingdom that is not of this world. And yet it is more real than what you see in this world. His kingdom is real, and it continues to grow and grow every hour, uh, imperceptibly. You might also, uh, might, might almost say invisibly. We don't see this glorious spreading of this kingdom taking place uh, openly, the way we want to, the way that we hope to, but it's happening. It's happening all throughout the world in different places. It happens as the gospel goes forth, as it goes out into the world, and it is winning the hearts of rebels and converting them and transforming them, their minds, their thoughts, turning their, them, them uh, into children of God, from enemies to friends of God. That's the kingdom of this great king. And it is a glorious thing, the glorious body of Christ. And one day he will rule uh, openly and outwardly over all. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this king, Jesus, Jesus Christ, is Lord of all. Well, the Lord revealed these these beautiful names, these exalted names of this child through Isaiah. And the first we ran into was Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The Savior's 
Wisdom is revealed in this title. He will be a wise king. He is a king who has um, perfect knowledge of us and of all things. He knows how to rule us and to save us. He knows exactly what we need better than we know. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He is a perfectly wise and knowledgeable king. But first and foremost here, we have that word wonderful. And that describes his identity, who he is, what he is, if you will. He is the embodiment of wonder. He's a child, and yet he's given this ascription of deity, wonderful counselor. He will be a man. He will be David's descendant, and yet also God. And that's exactly how the New Testament fleshes out who Jesus is. If you want to have your mind stretched, if you want to grow in your appreciation for God and Jesus Christ, um, just meditate on what the scriptures teach of him. Go through the Gospels. You know, you might even spend some time meditating on the great um, creeds of Christianity, the ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These are the things that the church has confessed, drawing from Scripture uh, their understanding of who the Savior is, what His identity is. Or read that great section in the Westminster Confession, so rich and full, such a, a good and faithful summary of what Scripture says about our Lord and who He is. And of course, these, uh, these creeds and confessions, are, they're drawing on the Scriptures to help us understand and to know God and to know Christ. And let me tell you, when you're getting to know Christ, getting to know Jesus Christ and what makes him who he is, you are right on the very brink of what human minds can comprehend. Actually, we go quite past the brink of that. He's incomprehensible. He's far beyond what we can fully comprehend. But we can know him. And we can know what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. And so it's important that we think about these things and interact with that. God has revealed such wonderful things about his son and who he is. And in a nutshell, the Bible is teaching us that he is God and man. Fully God and fully man. Two complete, distinct natures, and yet united together in one person. It's important that we get that straight. He's not two persons squeezed into one body. That would be pretty uh, odd. That's not the teaching of Scripture, but it does teach us that he is one person who has two natures, divine and human. And nor do those two natures get mingled together 
and mixed up in that one person, uh, kind of like a smoothie or something. That's not Jesus Christ. He still has two distinct natures. They're not blended together. They're not mingled. They stay distinct, even though he's one person. He will always be fully God and fully man. Those two distinct natures, and yet united together in one glorious person. Through a miracle. It's a miraculous union that God uh, has worked to unite those two natures into this one amazing person. Allow me to read a, a short snippet from the Westminster Confession in the section that describes Jesus Christ. It describes him this way. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did take upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities, yet without sin. And being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. This person is very God and very man, fully, fully God and fully man, and yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. He is a wonder. It's so awesome to think about the wonder of this person, Jesus Christ. I encourage you to, to spend time meditating on who he is, and digging deeper into the scriptures uh, to know him as he's been revealed to us. Mighty God is the second name that we came to. This is another ascription of deity. Mighty God. It tells us, of course, that he's God. But it also tells us that he will be uh, a mighty warrior for us. That's the sense of that word, mighty. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us all throughout his earthly life and ministry. He was this mighty warrior. He was battling. He was living his life in this world with all the forces of evil arrayed against him, the devil himself, temptation in every way. He fought every temptation to disobey his father. And it was a war. You know, you're living that war too if you're a believer. 
but he fought it and he won it he won that battle he won the victory for us the final victory when he died for our sins and he rose again from the dead in victory we still have to wage that spiritual warfare believers but christ has won the final victory for us that should encourage you very much as you fight that fight he has won the victory for everyone who trusts in him and his perfect salvation next isaiah tells us this child will also be called everlasting father now that's one that uh, might trip you up a little bit everlasting father or eternal father now this also speaks of his being god only god is eternal only god is without beginning or end now we're going to be living without end but we're created beings we had a beginning but he is without beginning or end and his reign certainly will be without end scripture uh, clearly tells us again and again but now for his being called father here that's where we get a little confused is this a confusing of the trinity we're saying this is isaiah speaking of the second person of the trinity here god the son it almost sounds like he's shifting gears and starting to talk about god the father the first person of the trinity but no that's not what he's doing here now in john 14 and in other places jesus emphasizes that he is one with the father and to see him is to see the father but he also clearly teaches that he is not the father he is distinct from god the father the father is distinct from the son and the son is distinct from the holy spirit and the father is distinct from the holy spirit none of these three persons is synonymous with the others they're all distinct persons within the one godhead that's the great mystery of the trinity we can't again can't fully comprehend this amazing mystery he is our god is one and yet three three persons within that oneness so no isaiah is not confusing the son god the son with god the father here he's talking about god's son and he's talking about him in a way that the old testament people of god would have understood see the trinity becomes more fully revealed in the new testament but it was not fully revealed in the old testament they understood the language of god being called father as well but it meant something different to them it was a designation for a ruler in israel there were all kinds of different rulers there were magistrates there were judges and there were kings and these rulers these leaders were referred to as fathers in israel 
That was a, a warm, reverential title for those leaders of the nation. And that's the word that Isaiah is picking up here, and he's saying that the Messiah will be the ultimate eternal ruler for his people. The people of Israel were so tired of their rulers being uh, bad. There were rulers that fell so far short of what they should have been. And they had so many of them. They went through so many, king after king. And there were the times of the judges. And uh, none of them were the ideal leaders that could lead God's people in righteousness and lead them to the kind of life that they needed to have. Even the best of them fell far short. None could deliver the kind of peace and life, security, and deliverance from sin that the human heart longs for. None of them could give all that God's people needed to have. But this child king would do it. He would be the father in that sense of being their ruler that they truly needed. He would have a good reign as their king. He would live up to that title beautifully, father, being a good father to his people. He would not only be concerned about the physical well-being of his people, but their spiritual good, their spiritual well-being. And he would secure their spiritual well-being. He's also called the Prince of Peace here. Prince of Peace. He's the one that would bring true peace to his people and to the world. So many earthly rulers want to establish their kingdoms. That's the story of history over and over again. Rulers trying to establish their rule. And it's usually through war. And they're still doing it today, aren't they? And on and on it goes. There's war here, there's war there, there's rumors of war. Well, Jesus was not like that. Jesus established his kingdom by making peace. He's the prince of peace. Peace is the mark of his reign. The angels spoke of it. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. The long-awaited prince of peace came into the world to bring peace, real peace. And his peace is of a quality that the world has never known before. It's not temporal peace. It's not the, the cessation of war and conflict between peoples and nations. We long for that too, but this is so much more than that. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now, Jesus was saying that the night before his crucifixion, 
He was just about to die to establish eternal peace. Peace came at the cross of Christ. Peace with God for all who trust in this peacemaker. Peace isn't just about stopping wars on earth. That's that's the best that our rulers can hope for. You know, we see them clamoring just for a, a ceasefire in Israel, for example. That's the best they can hope for. Just let's just stop the shooting for a little while. And then of course war is just gonna break out somewhere else. It always does. But Jesus came to address the root cause of all warfare and of all conflict. And he comes to remove that cause of warfare. And that cause is sin. Sin had to be dealt with. Sin has to be taken away. Only then can there be true peace. And it's peace with God, peace between God and man that we need. By far, that's the, that's the peace that we truly need. Edward J. Young wrote, not only must man be at peace with God, but what is more important, God must be at peace with man. The enmity which existed between God and man had to be removed. And it was human sin that kept God at enmity with man. When that sin is removed, then there can be peace. That is what the Lord Jesus came to accomplish. And he did that by dying as the atoning sacrifice for sinners. A peace offering, if you will. Isaiah wrote, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He took all our sin away, off of us, and he put it upon himself. And he bore that punishment that had to be poured out upon our sin. He bore it for all his people on the cross. And he did that so that all the demands of God's justice, all the need for sin to be punished, all of his holiness and righteousness could be completely satisfied, all those demands fully met by his death in our place, by the death not just of a mere man, but the God-man, a death of infinite value. God himself bearing our sin in our place. And now because of that, God is free and can fully forgive and can justly forgive everyone 
who trusts in this person, trusts in this wonderful Savior. He will fully forgive your sins and justify you completely of all things. And he will even credit the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to you if you only trust in him, lay hold of him by faith, take him to be your Savior, lay your sins upon his head, and take what he gives you, his perfect righteousness. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 verse 20 says, He has come to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. People, only Jesus gives this peace. You can have it freely as a gift, but it comes only through him. And you can only have it when you rely upon him completely. Trust in him, in him alone. It is a gift of God's grace that he delights to give to you by faith. Faith alone. This peace with God and peace that passes understanding. And only Jesus can give that to you. Only he can put you in a right relationship with God, a safe, loving relationship with this great and glorious God. No more enmity, no more warfare between God and you, but peace and his love and his graciousness toward you all your days. Only he can enable this all holy God to be at perfect peace with you. If you want true peace, you have to go to Jesus in that way, by faith, trusting in him, relying upon him, depending on him to be your perfect savior and sin bearer. And apart from him, there's no peace, no salvation, no hope of heaven. But the moment you trust in him, everything changes. All that enmity, all that warfare is ended. Now God is your beloved, and you are his beloved. And you'll never be separated from his perfect everlasting love that is yours in Christ Jesus. So Isaiah tells us that this, this child will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. He's pointing us, fixing our eyes on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's giving us a description of who He is. And He's pointing us to trust in Him, to trust in Him alone. As Paul says, He Himself is our peace. Don't even focus so much just on what he's done for you. It's him. He himself is what you need. You need this Prince of Peace. 
He gives peace like a river. The angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And God's favor, his eternal favor, rests upon you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. That's it. Trust in him and believe it. Believe that you have God's favor. Believe that you have his peace and his love secured to you forever. That's the teaching of God's word. It's the teaching of the gospel. You have peace with God and you have God himself as your loving God. And he bestows on you every other blessing eternally because you trust in his son, our peacemaking savior. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this message from the scriptures. We thank you that you revealed it even in the old covenant in a, uh, a beautiful, poetic way, such a wonderful way that you speak through the prophets. The new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. You made these things known so your people of old would be able to fix their eyes on Jesus. And we thank you so much that you have sent him into the world and given us all the New Testament scriptures as well to make him known to us so that we can rejoice and trust in him. We pray that you grant that faith to us, enable us to rest and rejoice in this glorious gift that you've given of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with peace, even as we trust in the peace that you have established through his blood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.